1 Kings chapter 15, if you'll join me there as we continue our study through 1 Kings together. At this point, again, remember we are looking at now what is referred to as the time of the divided kingdom in the nation of Israel, that meaning that the nation itself is divided into the northern kingdom of what is continuously referred to as Israel, and they have their own king there in the north. The southern kingdom consisting of the two tribes of Benjamin and Judah, which was always referred to as Judah, they have their own king there uh, in the southern kingdom, and it sort of flips back and forth uh, between these different territories and the kings that are reigning. Last time as we came into chapter 15, we went down as far as verse 15 together, and we were introduced to the next king of Judah in the southern kingdom, a man named Asa. And Asa was one of the few good and godly kings that the southern kingdom of Judah had. Uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, we will see, unfortunately, they never had one good king at all. They never had one godly king to ever reign upon the throne in Judah. Uh, they had a little bit of a mixture. They had some bad and evil and ungodly kings, but they also had a few good and godly men who reigned for time periods that brought times of reform, uh, times of revival, spiritually seeking to bring the nation back to God. And Asa was one of those men uh, that brought about some good things during the time of his reign. He had quite an extensive reign, we saw. Uh, it says in chapter 15, verse 10, that he reigned for 41 years. So, uh, again, quite a lengthy reign. I mean, we sometimes have difficulty swallowing four or eight years uh, with having a national leader in our administration. Imagine for four decades the same man reigning upon the throne. And in that case, boy, you really hope that you get yourself a good and godly man reigning on the throne because a lot of wonderful things can happen. Certainly no man is perfect and no administration ultimately fixes the problems of a nation. Only God can be the right solution for any nation and the right ruler over any nation. But Having a good and godly man in office, uh, someone who at least values and esteems the things of God makes a big difference. Asa was one of those men, uh, thankfully, for the southern kingdom for a period of time, and he reigned during that time period we'll see of multiple different kings in the northern kingdom they will change kings a few times so he through his administration will see multiple different kings there in the northern part of Israel during the time of his long 41 year reign but Asa wasn't a perfect man uh, he had some mistakes though the Bible tells us he did what was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father and that his heart was loyal to the Lord all his days and he sought to exterminate from the land perversity and idolatry uh, he also had his fair share of shortcomings as again even the best of men are just men at best and we have to always remember that uh, and we see a little bit of some of his shortcoming here in the chapter as we go onward it tells us where we pick up in chapter 15 verse 16 that there was war it says between Asa that again that's the king of the Judah in the south and Baasha king of Israel in the north all their days so there was constant conflict as we'll see throughout the history of Israel at this time between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This was one of those occasions. Verse 17 tells us that Baasha, the king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So Baasha, king of Israel, uh, he sort of comes down now near the border area between the northern and southern kingdom 
And it tells us that he built up the area of Ramah. Now, Ramah is about five miles north of Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem will be the capital and will remain the capital of Judah for the southern kingdom. It's where the temple of God is. And so now Ramah is very close to the capital city of the southern kingdom. And really what Baasha does, he brings in a great force and it says that he's basically trying to restrict movement to and from the area of Jerusalem and the capital city. He says that he would not let any go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. So he makes a maneuver militarily to kind of try and cut off the traffic and the passageway between the uh, people of Judah and their king to be able to have uh, regular relations there within the area of Judah. And what you have at this point now being described is a military situation or a scenario that arises for Asa, king of Judah, where he finds himself kind of feeling trapped. Uh, it says that Ramah is sort of fortified. Again, that's five miles from the capital city where Asa was. So Asa, as a man, finds himself in a situation where he feels trapped. No doubt he's fearful of what the outcome is going to be as now Ramah is well built up and occupied militarily by Baasha and his forces. Uh, and you know what? Sometimes we may find ourselves in a similar situation where maybe a circumstance arises in our personal life or our family life where you kind of almost have that same sense where you feel like I kind of feel like I'm trapped in this situation here. And it seems like that I can't get out and there's nothing I can do. And, and we kind of find ourselves feeling a little bit trapped sometimes, maybe because of circumstances that arise. And, and that, of course, produces fear of, of what the outcome is going to be. And, and oh, oh my, this doesn't look good. And I wonder what's going to happen. I feel stuck and trapped in this situation. And, and that causes us then typically to either react or respond. Now, when we react, we usually enter into the activities of our flesh and our own human nature. When we respond, we look to the Lord and we look to God in regards to helping us. Asa here, as he finds himself kind of trapped and intimidated of what the outcome is going to be here as the forces of Baasha are right breathing down his neck and things are being restricted from normal activity, Unfortunately, Asa here doesn't make the best of decisions. It looks like all goes well, but watch what unfolds. It says, verse 18, Then Asa took all the silver and the gold that was left in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the treasuries of the king's house. So he accumulates all the wealth from the king's palace. He takes all the gold and the silver out of the treasuries of the house of the Lord, not to do the works of God, but look what he does. He takes all this wealth, he delivers it into the hand of his servants, verse 18. And then King Asa sent them to Ben-Hadad. Now that's the king of Syria. He sends them, these servants, to Ben-Hadad, the son of Hezion, king of Syria, who dwell in Damascus, saying, let there be a treaty between you and me as there was between my father and your father. See, I have sent you a present of silver and gold. Come, break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So it seems, a little bit of detail filled in here, that there was some alliance that was made between the king of Syria and Baasha, the king of Israel in the north, where somehow they were sort of working together cooperatively, maybe even in this military effort and endeavor 
to try and support one another in sort of an allegiance. So what you have here is uh, basically Asa decides, you know what, I need to buy the guy off. I need to do what I can. So he accumulates all the wealth he can. He sends his servants and he basically makes a request, listen, break your allegiance, break your alliance together with Baasha. I can pay you better. I'm the high, you know, I, I can give you better money in a military contract. Make your treaty with me. And, and he says, come break your treaty with him. So that way he'll withdraw from me. In other words, what he's trying to do here is hire out a mercenary to basically come and help him to deal with this problem to deliver him from the military situation he finds himself trapped in now notice what he's doing instead of seeking the lord no mention here of him praying no mention of him here going to the house of god and seeking god for direction instead of seeking the lord or relying on the lord in the situation he's in he turns to his own human strategizing to try and solve the issue and what he does is in his own mind he recognizes okay i got a problem on my hands here i feel trapped uh, I, I need to deal with this situation he's a little bit fearful he's starting to get nervous and apprehensive but rather than seek god he starts to strategize in his own flesh and he starts reasoning out and putting together his own little human plan and strategizing and using his own efforts and resources and relying upon the arm of flesh. He takes matters into his own hands and he schemes with his own ideas how to solve this problem that he finds himself facing. And again, such a common reaction that we can make so often as people. Uh, whether a king of Israel, a king of Judah, or just in our own little life, and you know we all have our own little sphere that we have somewhat rulership over, and we're trying to deal with our own little situations and have proper rulership over our own life and responsibilities and our you know our financial matters and our job responsibilities and and our family matters and our personal lives. We we rule over our own little sphere. And sometimes we find ourselves in a situation and unfortunately the mistake we can make is instead of seeking the Lord with our problem or situation or relying on the Lord to give us direction how to deal with the situation or that he would come and intervene and resolve it for us or that he would come to our aid or our assistance, unfortunately sometimes we just start to strategize and we just start to come up with our own little idea okay well okay let me just think this through here and so i don't have time for my devotions and i don't have time to pray or i don't have time to go to church or time to seek god but i got time to sit here and stress out for four and a half hours and come up with a really good plan right and we, we do that and then we just start you know okay well if i do this and do that and okay if i do that and then if then that connects to that and then if i take this money from over here and that and if i call those people and and do this and if i line up that then that will eventually connect and and we just start strategizing and leaning on the arm of flesh and our own human ideas and scheming and coming up with our plans to try and fix our problems and we kind of completely disregard the fact that the greatest problem solver is waiting for us to come to him so he he comes up with a plan he gathers all the money from the house of god he gathers all the house of money uh, the money from the you know house of the king presents this proposal now to the king of syria who again is a foreign enemy he's not even it's a, this is a pagan king he's turning to the king of syria these people became perpetual enemies of israel and yet he's turning to an enemy to make an alliance in verse 20 it says so ben hadad heeded king asa and he sent the captains of his armies against Aijon and Dan 
and he attacked them, Ebal-Methaka and Chinneroth with all the land of Naphtali. And it happened, notice, when Baasha heard about what was going on, that he stopped building Ramah and he remained in Tirzah, which would be his capital city at that time. And then King Asa made a proclamation throughout all Judah. None was exempted and he took away the stones and the timber of Ramah. So they started disassembling the fortified city of Ramah that King Baasha had been building and sort of was kind of bunkering down in to hold them from going to and from Jerusalem. They start disassembling that, which Baasha had used for building. And with them, King Asa then built with those same resources, Geba of Benjamin and Mizpah. So look what happens here. It seems like from a natural perspective, like his plan worked. I mean, he found himself facing a difficulty. Rama was being built up. They were being restricted in their access. It looked like Baasha was going to take them over. He comes up with a really great plan on his own. He gets the money together. He has all the resources. He's able to convince the king of Syria to break his alliance with Baasha to come into allegiance with him. As a result of that, it says Baasha heard what had happened right away. Perhaps he realizes, okay, maybe now I'm outnumbered. He stops building there in Ramah and basically he dismisses himself. He goes away. Asa is able to come in disassemble the city and then even take those resources and go build himself some other locations and fortify some other areas that are described so really from asa's perspective and probably most of the people in judah it's like what that worked out my plan really went well i mean hey that, was, that actually was a pretty good plan i mean that that was successful i mean from a human standpoint it looked on the surface like that was successful and everything went well the problem was that he had failed to rely on the Lord in faith in the way in which he should have. And he did not look to the Lord. In fact, the account of this same instance in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, which again, 2 Chronicles, you'll see in the book of Chronicles, often fills in a lot more details. We usually get summaries in 1 Kings and then more details in Second Chronicles of a lot of these same stories. Second Chronicles 16 tells us that after this event happened, that a word from the Lord of correction and rebuke comes to Asa for his failure to depend upon God and his turning to the arm of flesh instead. It tells us chapter uh, 16, verse 7 of Second Chronicles, at that time, Hanani the seer came to Asa, king of Judah, and said to him, because you have relied on the king of Syria and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Syria has escaped from your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, he delivered them into your hand. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. In this you have done foolishly, therefore from now on you shall have worse. So the end result is though it looked like it worked out, it may have looked like on a human level it worked out, but from God's perspective, God was like, that didn't work at all. All that did was allow you to do what you wanted to do and basically cause you not to depend on me, not to let me work and not to, to, to work in cooperation with me and let me get the glory and the end result, God said, is you've done foolishly. You did not rely upon the Lord. And he says the unfortunate thing, verse 7, as we read it there, said, 
is therefore, he said, the army of the king of Syria has now escaped from your hand. In other words, what God was saying is, if you would not have done that, you would have been able to have conquered the Syrians. But now that you've made this military alliance with them by paying them off in the way that you did, now you're not going to be able to conquer them in the way I wanted you to, and they will now be a perpetual enemy and thorn in the flesh for the people of God for years and years and years to come. And so basically, he forfeited an opportunity. He failed to trust God and look to God to work, and he lost an opportunity as a result. And you know, whenever we make that same mistake and we don't rely upon the Lord and we lean on other things and our own solutions and we work out our own little schemes and strategies, the unfortunate thing is we fail to get a chance to see God work. And we miss opportunities that God could have brought for us to see the the power of the Lord and the hand of the Lord. And we fail to learn lessons of faith and things about our God. And unfortunately, we just become more self-reliant, thinking somehow that we're able to do things on our own. And it just hinders and harms a whole lot more. Well, it says here as we go on in chapter 15 uh, in our text here, that though this looked like it worked, obviously God wasn't pleased. Verse 23 says, Then the rest of all the acts of Asa and all his might that he did in the cities in which he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Again, referring to Chronicles, which we'll see in our study beyond this. But at the time of his old age, the Bible tells us, he was diseased in his feet, just in case you want to try and envision that in a picture in your mind some type of gout or something was going on, some disease in his feet. So Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father, and then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. And we'll see Jehoshaphat will be a very godly man as well. We don't get much of his account, but we'll see that in the uh, scenes ahead. But again, even that reference to him being diseased in his feet in his old age, when we get to the book of Chronicles again, it will tell us that it became another occasion where God was giving an opportunity to look to the Lord. And again, rather than seeking the Lord for the solution or help of his problem, he began to seek Uh, the things of the flesh instead to try and resolve matters of his own so this became a real weakness it was sort of a a chink in the armor if you would of Asa Uh, here's it was a good man he was a godly man but the chink in the armor of Asa the weak spot in Asa's life is he always was a schemer and whenever something came about rather than just humbly look to the Lord he always tried to figure out himself first And it was basically, let me see if I can scheme away or strategize away or solve that myself. And instead of just depending upon the Lord and seeking God and and letting God work, he had this sort of bad tendency of always trying to take matters in his own hand and just fix it himself and come up with his own solutions. And it, it just became something that backfired in his life so often. Verse 25 says, Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel in the second year of Asa, king of Judah. So in the second year of Asa's 41-year reign, there was a transition of power in the north. Nadab becomes the next king in Israel, and he reigned over Israel, notice, only two years, so a very short reign. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in the way of his father, and in his sin by which he made Israel Sin. So notice a few things we see here in regards to Nadab. Very short reign, but 
It's interesting the Bible tells us there in verse 26, and I don't know that he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as many of those kings did, but the language there, verse 26, he walked in the way of his father. In other words, the evil that he did was evil that he had learned and he just patterned and repeated by the way that he saw his father live and his father walk. He walked in the way of his father. We'll, we'll see that phrase uh, often kind of you know, brought up again and again. He walked in the way of his father. In other words, the evil that he learned, the wrong patterns and habits in his life, he basically caught and, and learned those things by the way that his father lived and walked in front of him. So unfortunately, you know, this is often the case that so many times, you know, children end up repeating the sins of their parents and walking in the patterns of their parents. Now, now listen, that works both ways. It is a very, very common thing for sons to walk in the ways of their fathers. Fathers have incredible influence, incredible influence. And so if a father is living in sinful ways and, and has wrong morals and bad and ungodly or sinful habits, it is very, very typical for those habits to end up being transferred to the sons. And the sons just naturally tend, because of just the influential dynamic that exists between a father and a son, to just gravitate to walking. It's almost as if, you know, as you keep walking through the woods enough time, you eventually, you, you, you wear a path. And so then it just becomes much easier for the son to just find that path that the father already made and to just walk in that same path. And so many of us have seen this and some of us honestly can say, yeah, I've not only seen it, I've actually done it. Uh, there was a season where I just did that. I, I just walked in the same ways as my father, maybe in things that weren't good or weren't healthy. But let me all say on the other side of that, the influence of a father can also be used for incredible good. And, and it is also a very powerful, influential thing where when a father lives for God and serves God and walks with God, when children will walk in the ways of their father. And so often if the father chooses to really live for the Lord and serve the Lord, the wonderful thing is that it can have a very wonderful effect, a powerful impact upon the children, upon the sons and the daughters who choose to walk in the way of their father and seek to emulate that in the same way. Well, unfortunately, Nadab had an evil father and he walked in the way of his father and in his sin, not only did he sin, but because he was the king, notice he made Israel sin. So notice, sad, when one person sins, especially if they're a national leader, their sin tends to influence other people. And it is always a very sad and tragic thing when one person's sin influences other people to sin as well. And this is exactly what Nadab did. It says that his sin actually made Israel sin and you know God help us we do not want to be standing before God accountable knowing that our sin ended up made, making someone else sin that's never a good thing it's bad enough to sin it's a whole lot worse when your sin ends up making other people sin because you influence them to do the same ungodly or evil things or try to trigger them into other sinful behaviors verse 27 then Baasha the son of Ahijah of the house of Issachar conspired against him. So we're going to see now how he died. And Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege 
to Gibbethon. So while they were laying siege, Baasha comes in. This is how he takes the throne, Baasha, after a two-year reign of, uh, a very short reign of Nadab. He assassinates him while they're in the midst of what they're doing there, laying siege to Gibbethon. And Baasha killed him, it says, in the third year of Asa, king of Judah's reign, and then reigned in his place. So he basically assassinates the king so he can take over uh, the role of the king. And so it was, verse 29, when he became king, that he then killed, notice, all the house of Jeroboam. That would be the grandfather of Nadab. So again, what he's doing is now exterminating all the relatives of that entire family to, to wipe out the possibility of that family dynasty ever restoring itself to power. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken by his servant Ahijah the Shilite. Remember back in 1 Kings chapter 14 when God pronounced the judgment against Jeroboam, God said that a man would rise up and would basically destroy the entire family line of Jeroboam. And that's exactly what Baasha now becomes the fulfillment of. This is a, in a sense a fulfillment of prophecy. God predicted and knew in advance that these very events were going to happen years and years later before they ever did, God spoke of them. Because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned, by which he made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab, verse 31, and all he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah, uh, kings of Israel, excuse me? And there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Baasha, the son of Ahijah, became king over all Israel in Tirzah, and he reigned 24 years. So Baasha had a little bit longer of a reign. <clears throat> the prior king was only two years. He now is going to reign 24 years, a pretty extensive reign there in the northern area. Verse 34, he didn't do much better, even though he wasn't a relative of Jeroboam and Nadab, he just perpetuated the exact same evil, sinful activity. Verse 34, again, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin, notice again as well, by which he made Israel sin. So notice, you have an ungodly leader, you're going to have an ungodly influence upon the nation. You have someone who cares nothing about morals or morality or sin that's going to always translate and cause itself to have an influence upon the nation. And again, we see these continual references because the king sinned, he ultimately made the nation enter into sin as well. And the problem was not just that he was doing evil, verse 34, but he did evil in the sight of the Lord. That's, that's the thing at the end of the day. That God's the one making the observations and it is the true king who reigns upon the throne of all the universe who is the one ultimately that anyone should be answering to whether the king of a nation or not. So his evil was done in the sight of the great king in the sight of the Lord. Verse 16, excuse me, chapter 16. As we go through this chapter now, what we're going to do is predominantly stay with a focus on the northern kingdom. So we're not really going to return now. These are going to just be different kings and dynasties that existed during the time of uh, the reign of Asa there as the king of Judah. So we'll see not one, not two, but five different kings, five different kings and dynasties of the northern kingdom of Israel referred to here in chapter 16. And, and I want you to take notice, you're going to see things like, for example, constant instability. 
You're going to see continuous change. You're going to see division and drunkenness and suicide. And let me tell you why you're going to see instability and division and selfishness and murder and drunkenness and suicide. Sin. Because those are the, those are the outflows of sin. And because of the effect and the influence of sin in the nation, these are the symptomatic things that began to brew and began to surface among the nation. You'll see that continuously, symptomatically being displayed in this chapter because of the sinful activity of the leaders and the people who cooperate in the same practices. Verse 1 of chapter 16 says, Then the word of the Lord, so a prophecy now, came to Jehu, the son of Hanani, to a prophet against Baasha the king saying here's the prophecy inasmuch as I lifted you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins surely I will take away the posterity that is the family line of Baasha and the posterity of his house and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Again, the idea is it will be completely destroyed. All of the family line will be eliminated. Verse 4, the description, the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Baasha and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. Now, as we said last time, a reference like that is just a, a description of, of, of dying in utter and complete disgrace. Uh, in that ancient culture, and especially among the Jewish people, it was a honorable and a dignified thing to bury your dead the exact day that they died. That, that was, I mean, just when someone died that day, not only was it practical because it was a hot Mideastern climate and bodies decomposed and odors came about. In that day, there was just a sense when someone died, it was real, it was permanent, it happened. Everything stopped and they dealt with it. And, and it was the appropriate thing to bury your dead typically the same day they died and to make sure they had an honorable, dignified burial as they were laid to rest. What this is describing when he says here, the dogs will eat whoever belongs to Baasha that dies in the city and the birds of the air will eat the carcass of whoever dies in the fields. It's a picture of people dying in the city or dying in the fields and their corpse just laying there. And basically people saying that person is such a scoundrel, they're so disgraceful, they're so unworthy, they were such a rotten individual, just let their corpse rot and let the dogs and the birds of prey just devour their flesh. They don't even deserve a burial. That, that's the idea there, is that, that his family line would be so evil, so disgraceful that this would be their end as they were being put to death, that no one would have any respect for them at all because of the sinful activities and the practices. And, and, and God here is reproving him as he's predicting these things are going to happen, saying, listen, I raised you up. I gave you an opportunity. And yet you dishonored that and you chose to just walk in the sins of Jeroboam anyway. And again, notice, sin had consequences. The wages of sin is death. Nothing good came out of the sinful activity. Nothing good at all. Nothing but shame and regret and disgrace and really just a complete loss of respect as his family would basically be completely removed and killed off as a dynasty. Verse 5 says, Now the rest of the acts of Baasha and what he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? 
So Baasha rested with his fathers and was buried in Tirzah. And then Elah, his son, reigned in his place. So now this is the son of Baasha now who comes to rule after his father dies. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Baasha and his house because of all the evil he did in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. That's never good with God provoking him to anger with the work of his hands in being like the house of Jeroboam and because he killed them. That is, he, he slaughtered in a murderous way the entire house of Jeroboam. He had no pity, no compassion. He just murdered all the relatives of the house of Jeroboam to try and preserve his reign to make sure no one from that family came back and tried to reclaim the dynasty. He just was a cold-hearted, callous murderer as he assassinated the whole family of the king. Verse 8, it says, In the 26th year of Asa, remember he had a 41-year reign, so we're in the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's when Elah, this son of Baasha, became the king over Israel in the north. And he reigned, again, two years in Tirzah. So again, another very short reign, just two years long. Now his servant Zimri, verse 9, commander of half of his chariots so a military general of sorts conspired against him as he was in Tirzah drinking himself drunk that's a descriptive statement isn't it drinking himself drunk the Bible is very picturesque it says in the house of Arza steward of his house in Tirzah and then Zimri while he was drunk the idea is went in his general, and struck him and killed him. So now he's assassinated in the 20th year, uh, 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and then reigned in his place. So notice what happens. Elah now comes to the throne. He has a very short reign, and we're told how he came to the end of his reign. He as well was assassinated by someone. He as well was the uh, byproduct of another conspiracy, another palace coup, another power-hungry man. One of his generals, Zimri, turned upon him, conspired, and capitalized on an occasion when basically, verse 9 says, he was partying it up as the king. And rather than doing what he should be and being responsible and self-controlled and caring about making good decisions for the nation... He's just abusing his power and spending his wealth for alcohol. And it says drinking himself drunk. <laughs> just drinking himself drunk, it says there, in the house of one of the other officials, a steward uh, there named Arza. Now, uh, take notice. As the result of what uh, Elah's doing, drinking himself drunk and being completely inebriated, it was at that time when he was drunk that verse 10 says that Zimri came in his general and struck him and killed him and assassinated him. Now, I want you to take notice here. Because Elah was foolishly getting drunk, what did he do? He, he made himself vulnerable to what was dangerous and what was harmful in his own life. The very fact that he was drunk put himself at risk. Because he was drinking, because he was abusing alcohol and in a drunken condition, that made him in a vulnerable condition where he was at great risk to personal harm. And his drunken condition and that whole party scene impaired his judgment and it put him in a wrong place at a wrong time and led, really, you could say, to personal destruction in his life. You might want to contemplate that if you think there's something good or valuable in getting drunk. 
It led to nothing good in his life. As he's partying it up and enjoying his little position there and indulging, notice, here we have another occasion. And I I challenge you, read the Word of God in its entirety and its its context. Here's another occasion in the Word of God where drinking and drunkenness is portrayed in a very negative light. A very negative light. Oftentimes, the end result of drinking and drunkenness is one thing. Bad things happen. Bad things happen. When a person utilizes alcohol and their judgment becomes impaired and then they just continue to go further and further along, not only is their judgment impaired, but they make themselves vulnerable. They create opportunities for risky, dangerous, destructive, harmful things that happen to their lives. And a lot of times the end result of drunkenness is personal destruction in a life. It's personal destruction. It's exactly what happens here. So again, so important, you know, something that is such a problem in our culture that we recognize that the word of God always holds before us. Look, this person was drunk and bad things happened. Bad things happened. And here, this man was getting drunk, the king, as a result of that, that very day or night, He's assassinated. He's not paying attention of his welfare, of his safety. He's assassinated that night by Zimri, who wants to take over the throne. Verse 11, then it came to pass when Zimri, he, that is Zimri, began to reign now, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he also killed all the household of Baasha. So he did exactly what uh, Baasha had done. He repeated the same thing. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives nor of his friends. Again, he didn't want to leave a kinsman redeemer or a goel. Remember, that was a family member who could come back and take revenge. Basically, again, they had no police departments in that day. That's what happened. A family member would avenge the death of another family member. So he made sure to kill every family member so no kinsman redeemer could come after him. And really, as I said before, so that no one would ever think about from that family trying to reclaim the throne for the family's sake and regather the dynasty. So he exterminated, put to death, and murdered not just the king, but he assassinated all the family of the king as well. Verse 12, Zimri destroyed all the household of Baasha according to the word of the Lord, the prophecy we read at the beginning of the chapter, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu the prophet for all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah's son by which they had sinned by which they made Israel sin in provoking the Lord God of Israel anger with their idols now the rest of the acts of Elah and all that he did are they not written in the books of the chronicles of the kings of Judah and in the 27th year of Asa king of Judah Zimri the man who just assassinated him reigned in Tirzah look at the guy's reign this was long Seven days. Woo! That's a life dream, huh? Seven days. That's probably about as long as anybody wants to be in the administration, the head of a nation, right? Seven short seven days is probably enough. Uh, seven days. So he went through all this effort. I mean, conspired, assassinated the king, assassinated the whole family. He's like, man, this is going to be great. And, and again, what's he, he's, he's living selfishly, murderously, sinfully. How long does he get to enjoy it? A week. A week. All that sin, all that selfishness, all that wrongdoing. How long does he get to enjoy it? Seven days. Seven days. You know, sin is pleasurable for a very brief season. <laughs> Maybe it lasts a few days. 
and that all the pain and the problem and the consequences and all the mess comes afterwards. This guy, seven days, all that for seven days to be king. And then Zimri, verse 16, ever heard of sowing and reaping? Look at verse 16. Now the people who were encamped heard Zimri has conspired and also killed the king. Word got out that he had conspired and assassinated the king. So all Israel said, oh, we don't want this guy as our king. He's, he's a murderer. He, he's, he was the general and he assassinated our king. So they chose to make Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Forget Zimri, we want Omri. And then Omri and all Israel with him went up from Gibbonoth and they besieged Tirzah, the capital city at that time. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken and that he then went into the citadel of the king's house and he burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had commanded in doing evil in the sight of the Lord in walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason that he committed are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. So take notice here what happens. Zimri realizes my days are numbered. <laughs> After a week, the people already don't want me as their king because they know how I became their king by assassinating the true king and all his family and the treason I committed. They've already picked a new king and are done with me. And he is so distraught and he feels so probably guilt-ridden and recognizes, hey, there, there's just there's no way out of this at this point. Unfortunately, we have here in the Bible one of a few references of another tragic suicide. And don't overlook that. Verse 18 there says, When he saw the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house, and he burned the king's house down upon himself with fire, and he died. That's suicide. That's a person making a decision to put an end to their own life choosing to escape their present experience by putting an end to their own life. And basically, he went from murdering someone else to choosing to murder himself. And that's what suicide is, unfortunately. It's self-murder. It's murder just in another form. It's choosing to murder yourself. And I, and I want to draw your attention. Please take notice some of the reasons that triggered this man Zimri to, if you would, contemplate and then ultimately carry out suicide. What are some of the things he's dealing with? Well, he felt guilt-ridden and he had regret in his life. I mean, the man just committed treason against this king. He assassinated his king while he was weak and vulnerable and helpless and drunk. He then assassinated all of his family members in cold blood and he took over his throne selfishly. You have a little bit of guilt when you do some things like that. So he's somebody who's struggling with guilt and regret inside of himself for things he's done wrong. He's someone who feels trapped in his current situation with no escape because he realizes they picked a new king. I feel trapped. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm stuck now. The people don't want me. He feels trapped. And no doubt he also feels hopeless regarding his future. And let me just say, a lot of times those are the kind of triggers that cause a person to have suicidal thoughts. They're dealing with guilt and regret in their life of things they wish they hadn't done and just carrying around guilt and regrets inside of themselves, which we all have. Maybe they find themselves feeling trapped in their current situation and they just feel like there's just no way of escaping this. 
I'm just trapped. I'm stuck. And they feel hopeless. And these are the things, listen, that are natural human thoughts and feelings that Satan and the devil just manipulates and manipulates and says, you're right. So you might as well just kill yourself. You might as well just take the escape route you, and, and just murder yourself. And, and listen, let me just say, suicide is an option, but it's the wrong option. It's the wrong option. It solves absolutely nothing. It's failing to endure through challenges and just trying to escape life challenges. Life's hard. We all have challenges. But God's called us to endure through our challenges, to learn through them, to grow through them, and if anything, to die to ourselves and to reach out to God, not to kill ourselves and give up on life. And suicide only causes more problems, more pain and more problems. And sadly, the devil here manipulates the mind of this man as the devil does so many people. That it would just be best to just end their own life. And we need to pray for people and be sensitive when people are in those situations. That these are the triggers that cause people to have these kind of thoughts. That the devil then just throws gasoline on that fire and tries to get them to carry out those thoughts of ending their own life. And listen, if you're wrestling with any of those thoughts tonight, you know, feeling guilt-ridden and regret, and you feel trapped in your current situation, you feel like there's no way of escaping and I feel so hopeless, listen, the answer is not ending your life. The answer is turning to Jesus Christ and letting him forgive your sin and take away the guilt out of your life and letting his love flood your soul and letting Jesus rescue you from what you feel trapped in and deliver you and save you from it and give you the hope that he's with you and loves you and has a future and a plan for you. And it's not meant for you to end your life. It's meant for you to give up your life and to say, Lord, I just, I give it up. I surrender to you. Help me. I want your life for me because my life that I'm living isn't working out in this way. So turn to the Lord if you ever wrestle with those things. Don't think that somehow ending your life is a solution. God loves you. He wants to help you through it. Verse 21, Then the people of Israel, says, were then divided into parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and then half followed Omri. So now division breeds more division. Now the, the, the northern kingdom's in another little civil war for a time. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, so Tibni died and Omni reigned. You got all that, right? Let's move on. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Omri became king over Israel. He reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah, that is, that was his capital city for six years. Verse 24 tells us why. And he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemir for two talents of silver, and he built on the hill and called the name of that city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemar, owner of that hill. Now, what he's doing here, this area, Samaria, is a very strategic location. So what's happening here and being described is he now switches his capital city, the location of his capital city, which used to be, you see the constant references for the northern kingdom, Tirzah. The northern kingdom now switches their capital city to Samaria. And that will continue to be the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria, from this point of Omri, going forward with the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Omri did evil, verse 25, in the eyes of the Lord, and he did worse than all who were before him. Now, that's never a good indication, worse than all who were before him. 
For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, in his sin by which he made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols and the rest of Acts of Omri and all that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers, was buried in Samaria, the capital city there, and then Ahab. Now he's going to be a key figure moving onward in chapter 17, 18, 19 ahead. Some really exciting things as we get into the life of Elijah. Ahab now comes to the throne to reign in the place of Omri. And in the 38th year, that's almost the end now of Asa, king of Judah's reign, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Again, a pretty long reign, 22 years. And Ahab is going to be one of, if not the most wicked, evil, and godly kings to ever reign in Israel. Most of us know Ahab and Jezebel. This is who Elijah the prophet will really confront for their evil. But he has a 22-year-long reign again. And he was a wicked, wicked, evil man. And again, we complain about four or eight years. 22 years they had a wicked, ungodly king. Ahab, verse 30, look what it says. Ahab did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Now what that's saying is this guy did evil in relation to evil. You catch my drift there? In other words, when you take evil, this guy was was doing what was evil in the realm of what was evil. Evil people are going, that guy's evil. (laughs) I mean, we're doing evil, but but that guy's, he does evil in comparison to evil. That's how wicked this man was. He did more evil than all who were before him. And this is one of the things that caused it. Verse 31, it came to pass as though that had been a trivial thing, just doing evil for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, that he took wife as a wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbanal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. And then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a wooden image, and Ahab did more, look at the language, he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the king's who were before him. Not only did he do more evil than anyone, but it says he did more sin and more evil. He caused more anger to the Lord to provoke God more than all the kings of Israel before him. And what the Bible is allowing us to see here as well is that a lot of that was in direct connection to verse 31, the woman that he married named Jezebel. And we'll see this more as we go on moving forward. Many of us know the story of Ahab and Jezebel and, and the, the wickedness these two did. And, and we'll see how Ahab was basically, just honestly, quite frankly, a very passive, weak-willed man who was greatly influenced by his wife Jezebel, who, notice, is the one really who brought to him a lot of the concepts and ideas about Baal worship and setting up the Asherah groves and all these kind of things as she came from an area of the Sidonians where pagan idolatry was a very common practice and so she introduced a lot of these things by her suggestions and ideas and influence to her husband we'll see this as we go on especially as I said in the ministry of Elijah but again I I want you to see this as if it was a trivial thing enough that he was evil verse 31 he also took as a wife Jezebel 
And, and I, I point this out to you for this very reason. It is so important to realize that a poor choice in marriage and entering into a commitment, a lifelong commitment of marriage with someone that is not healthy. Listen, that is going to result in nothing but further sin and ruin in your life. Ahab was already a wicked man. And then he married Jezebel. And it just got worse. All the weaknesses of his sinful flesh and his ungodliness were just brought to the surface because whoever you marry, listen, whoever you marry, if you're a man marrying a woman or a woman marrying a man, whoever you marry is going to have great influence over you. So you really better choose smartly who that is because that person is going to have huge influence on your life. They're going to have a major, major influential effect and choosing wrongly can really be choosing a destiny of what the rest of your life is going to be like. And Ahab marries Jezebel and it brings all kinds of horrific things out of him that perhaps, again, may not have even gone to the degree they did, but because who he married, he ended up down a path that was very ungodly and unhealthy. Verse 34 ends the chapter. We'll close here. And in his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. So we get this little, you know, this little reference here to this man, Hiel, in the days of Ahab and Jezebel. It says he built Jericho. And then the Bible reminds us that 500 years ago, that's what this is referring to, 500 years ago, it was spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun, Back in Joshua chapter 6, 500 years ago, after they conquered Jericho, Joshua 6 verse 26, Joshua pronounced a curse and said, whoever rebuilds Jericho after the Lord destroyed it, whoever tries to rebuild what God has torn down and work in resistance to God, he says, it will be done in such a way to the loss of their firstborn son and their youngest son. And a prophecy from 500 years ago ends up being fulfilled as this man comes to a place where he decides in his own reasoning, ah, you know, I'm, I, yeah, that, that's stuff from 500 years ago. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, this is this is the current generation, man. We're evolving. I mean, this is Ahab and Jezebel's reign. Times are different now. And, hey, it'd be a profitable thing. So he seeks to rebuild Jericho, and as he rebuilds Jericho, as he lays the foundation, his firstborn son dies. And as he finishes the city and puts on the gates of the walls of the city, his youngest son dies. Exact fulfillment and exact, exact fulfillment of what God prophesied would happen 500 years ago. And here we have this tragic example in the word of God of an individual who by doing something that was forbidden and was not in accordance with God's will, the end result, take notice, he lost his children. He lost his family. He did something God said, do not do. This Jericho is cursed. Whoever tries to do this, God says, it will result in the loss of their children, of their family. And yet he chose to do it anyway. And as a result of it, horrible, horrible consequence. He lost two of his children in the process. And I look at this passage of scripture and it just reminds me, we really, really have to be careful because, you know, 
Sometimes I see people and they chase something, they pursue something, whether it's a dream or whatever it may be. And sometimes people become so persistent to chase after something and in so doing, they sacrifice their own family. And they put their own family on the altar. Don't do that. Don't chase so hard after something that you want or want to do in such a way where you, in the pursuit of that goal, end up sacrificing your own family. Nothing like that is ever worth it. We have to be careful. And what God says, God means. And I think probably this passage is here more than anything. As just a reminder, as the days were chaotic and sinful and evil and everybody was thinking, oh my goodness, where is God? God inserts this one little reference here to say, look, I'm still complete control. (laughs) Despite all the evil everybody's doing out there, what I said 500 years ago in my word, it's still standing. And a prophecy from 500 years ago came to pass. Listen, no matter how evil and ungodly our world gets, don't ever jump off the bandwagon and think, oh, God's vacated his throne. Oh, no, he hasn't. God's coordinating everything according to his purposes and plans. And we want to keep our hearts submitted to him. Let's stand. Let's pray together.